Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this podcast. Will we ever hear the end of Deflategate? I guess we'll talk about that whenever else I might happen to have up my sleeve on episode 10 of The Bridge. Well, another happy Sunday, everyone. May 17th, 2015. The weather has finally turned into the favor of most. Nice and sunny and warm, and we're really getting into those great spring days as we hit the middle of May and prepare ourselves for a Memorial Day weekend that begs to be quite epic. I'll be spending the weekend with some friends down at the apartment here, and it begs to be quite the weekend here in sunny Scranton, though I'm sure next week the clouds will return since most students will be headed home for their summer breaks, and the only ones left will be the seniors. Hopefully they'll get a good senior week in, and we'll be able to start that off with a bang with some nice weather and some good times. But enough about that. There's a couple things to get into from what's happened throughout this week. We have some interesting developments in the NBA playoffs. We found out who will be advancing to the conference finals in both the East and the West. Some teams you expected to be there, others a little bit more shocking. So we'll get into that a little bit later in the podcast But I just wanted to touch on what's been the prevalent topic in the sports world for the past several months, really, but a little bit more in the past couple weeks. That, of course, being the Deflategate scandal with the New England Patriots. And it's amazing to me the impact that the National Football League has on the world and the populace, because at this point in the year, you should be talking about what's going on in the NBA playoffs where we stand in the NHL playoffs and who's going to be competing for the cup. And while hockey might not necessarily be a forefront that a lot of people want to talk about, it is still something very interesting and it's starting to get very exciting. Even though that's a niche sport in a way, it still brought a lot of entertainment up to this point. We've also got things happening in baseball, but we're not talking about that. We are talking about the NFL and what is at hand involving one of its most prolific superstars. Even though we won't have games for the next several months, this is what is on everyone's mind. And I'm sure it gives Roger Goodell a nice warm butterfly feeling in his stomach to know that everyone is on the edge of their seat to what he's going to decide and make final when this decision comes to fruition in the next couple of days or maybe couple of weeks. I talked enough about Deflategate last week to give you guys a rundown and summary of what came down in the Wells report that went over what they found in their investigation. An investigation that cost upward of $10 million or so and ranged with 243 pages of information to describe some text messages that were sent among some of the ball boys, some of their actions on game day for the AFC championship game, 
what happened off the field, what happened on the field, what some team said, who's guilty, who's not guilty, who is under the assumption to have done something wrong. And that's basically all the Wells report was, in a way, was just assumptions and conspiracy theories by fans. There was no concrete evidence of any wrongdoing, just probable cause that these things were done. If you'd like to listen to last week's episode, it's on LondonBridge.com, and you can listen to my thoughts on if the Patriots were guilty, if Tom Brady was guilty. I go into detail on some of those text messages, but I won't bore you with all those this week. I just wanted to update the situation and let everyone know that the suspension did come down a couple days after the podcast came out that Tom Brady would be suspended for four games. The team would be fined $1 million, and they will lose a first-round draft pick in 2016 and I believe a fourth-round pick in 2017, at least as it stands right now, which means Tom Brady would miss the season opener against the Pittsburgh Steelers on Thursday night. He would come back after the Week 5 bye that the Patriots have to start Week 6 if that suspension should hold. I don't think it will because to no one's surprise, Tom Brady did appeal that ruling and Roger Goodell named himself the independent arbitrator that's going to look at the appeal and figure out that process. He has a lot of balls to do that, and I'm not sure why he didn't bring in an outsider to do that and at least get him off the hook for that decision. You would like to think that the suspension will probably go down at least a game. I don't necessarily think they're going to dock any money out of that big payout of $1 million. I'm sure that's really going to hurt Robert Kraft or Tom Brady's wallet. Maybe Giselle's wallet, since she's probably paying the bills for the Brady's. But as I said before, most of this is just hearsay, and everyone has their own opinion on what actually happened, and if Tom Brady is a cheater, and if he knew that the balls were being deflated, and if he should be held responsible for that. What's interesting about this is this all stems back from something that took place back in 2005 or 2007, one of those years where Tom Brady and Peyton Manning got together and went to the Rules Committee and put forth this decree that they wanted to have control over the away game balls that were used when they had to play on the road, that they should be able to control the air pressure of the balls, how they felt in their hands, of course complying with the current NFL rules that were set. Before this scandal came to light, I was unaware of this rule where away teams were able to basically bring their own footballs and pump them up the way their quarterbacks wanted so they wouldn't have to deal with the home teams and how they had their balls suited for their own quarterbacks. I don't really necessarily think that would be a big deal. If you're playing on the road, another disadvantage of that, besides the fans and the environment, should be the equipment that you have to use might not be up to par with what you're used to at your home field. Just like some away teams might have crappy dugouts or crappy locker rooms. I remember back in high school, you'd play at some schools, you'd get stuck in basically a janitor's closet to get ready to suit up for your game. That was just how it is. They're not going to stick you in the presidential suite so you can get prepared the way you want to. They want you to struggle a little bit before you get onto the field. And they have little niches and things that are solely for their field. They might have a foul line that has a divot. So when you're rounding third and going for home, make sure you jump at this certain point. Or in the corner near the three-point line, make sure you don't stand on one of these spots because it'll give and it'll probably sprain your ankle if you don't step over that when you're about to shoot a three-pointer. Same thing for 
different football fields and locker rooms, there's always something that the home team has up their sleeve to make the other team feel uncomfortable. But with this rule put into play, opposing teams were able to pump up their own footballs and bring their own footballs to the away games. What blows my mind is that the National Football League is not the ones that are in charge of the footballs. Much like Major League Baseball or the NBA are the ones that deal with the baseballs or the basketballs for each game. A coach doesn't take the basketball out of his bag with the talents of five NBA players a la Space Jam. Throw that onto the court and see what happens. That's just not how it goes. You're given a certain ball, and you're expected to play with it. Of course, in baseball, if you were going to doctor up a baseball, you would have to doctor up a whole bucket full of baseballs because they go through a new baseball. It seems like whenever you blink, they're throwing them over to the dugout. If it gets nicked in the dirt or if you look at a baseball wrong before you throw it back to the pitcher, you might as well give it back to the ump because we need a new baseball out there. When I was a pitcher, I liked baseballs that had a little bit higher of seam, and I think most pitchers would like that if they wanted to get more movement on your ball, but that was just based on if your coach happened to buy them from the local dicks or if he went to a different shop to pick up his baseballs on the cheap. Some baseballs you would get brand new. Other baseballs have been used. They were a little rough around the edges. You just pitched with what you were dealt. You didn't look at the umpire and go, you know, I happen to bring my own baseballs for this game, rub them up a little before we got to the ballpark. So let's put these in a play, shall we? But that's basically what the NFL has been able to do. I think the simplest thing to do with this whole scandal, once the dust eventually settles, whenever that'll be, just put the rule back into play where the NFL hires some lackeys who come to the field before every game, rub the balls down, pump them up to the proper air pressure, and put them onto the field. You have to play with what you're dealt with. They already do that for the special team balls. I believe they call them the K-balls. They fill them with a certain amount of air pressure based on the fact that they have to be kicked and they're under that stress when they're kicking field goals or doing kickoffs or punts. And they're put on the field and everybody has to deal with it. The kicker's not going to run over to the referee and be like, you know, I like to wear a type of boot on my right kicking foot. And because of that, I sandpaper the bottom of these footballs to really give me a nice vertical and spin when I kick my field goals. Do you mind if I throw this football in there? Throw in my footballs. I got to go out and kick this extra point. Nobody would do that. And I think that's the problem. There's no real benefit to having that be the case. The NFL should be under the control of their own footballs. Obviously, they are for the Super Bowl in more important games, but clearly the AFC Championship game wasn't on that list of important games because Tom Brady and the New England Patriots were able to use their footballs, and this is where all the problems started. That's an argument that a lot of people have been saying on talk radio shows, but the biggest arguments came from a report that the New England Patriots released themselves. They created their own website sometime earlier last week and released this document that basically refuted everything from the Wells report and gave rhyme or reason for whatever they said they might have done wrong and made it seem correct. There was, I think, 19,600 plus words of information in this report basically the equivalent of a short story or a novella and god bless whatever sorry intern had to type all that shit up because it is a long long document who would have enough time to read this and who would want to read this it was almost like the patriots took a page out of what's been going on on social media for the past several years dealing with trolling 
where you come out on Facebook or Twitter and go after somebody for a joke to get back at them for something that they might have said and make light of the situation. This was a huge troll job by the New England Patriots to the NFL. It was hilarious and comical, and the fact that they thought this was legitimate information is beyond me. One of the things in the report dealt with a specific text message that was sent between Yastrzemski and McNally. Dealing with one of them, I forget which one, because who really cares at this point, referring to himself as the deflator. Well, it came out in this report that the Patriots released that the reason he used the word deflator was in reference to him trying to lose weight. I'm going to let that sink in for a second here. Just in case you're operating heavy machinery or doing some driving, I don't want you weaving off the road or anything like that. The word deflator and deflate was used in reference of losing weight and not in taking air pressure out of the footballs. Apparently, I think it was McNally, but regardless, apparently he has been trying to lose weight and bulk up a little bit. And several months before that, he used deflate in a term such as, you know, let's go to the gym and get swole or something along those lines. But he had said, let's go and get deflate or I need to deflate. Now, if you think this gentleman was referencing bulking up and losing weight and gaining muscle by using the word deflate, you should probably take another drink. I'd like to say I know a thing or two about current pop culture and some of the slang words that people use. I will be honest, I don't quite understand what the hell fleek means. If anybody could explain that to me, you could tweet at London Bridge and let me in on what fleek is. He's fleek. That's fleek. Besides that, I've never heard anyone reference a trip to the gym and the word deflate in the same sentence. People deflate balloons. People deflate swimming pools. People deflate footballs. They don't deflate their bodies. There are several other things that are referenced in this report. And if you have time to kill, which if you do, that's a different story. But you could go read this report. They reference things that when Tom Brady made several phone calls to McNally about whatever was happening with the deflated footballs, they were just talking about the Super Bowl and about current events and their wedding. Even though this was a guy that Tom Brady had really never spoken to before this, all of a sudden they're just talking about how the weather is and what they might be doing later up at the park with their children. I find that hard to believe, but according to this report, definitely plausible. The report in itself is comical, but you could also look at the Wells report in a similar fashion because there is no concrete evidence, as I mentioned, that Tom Brady knew of any wrongdoings or that his ball boys did anything wrong with these footballs. Now, the phrase, I believe, goes, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck and sounds like a duck, it's got to be a duck. That's where the Patriots are kind of falling into here. It's been very hard to not believe that there was any wrongdoings and shenanigans done with these footballs, and these guys are just trying to cover their tracks and get away with this as long as they possibly can. There's just so much evidence against them like, why were those two employees fired by the Patriots if they didn't do anything? Why did Tom Brady not turn over his cell phone if he didn't do anything wrong? And if he didn't want to turn over his cell phone, why has he not come out publicly since the Wells report was released and deny his involvement in any wrongdoings at all? There's an awful lot of questions, but what we can get from this is this four-game suspension by Roger Goodell 
that is another suspension he's had to hand down post the Ray Rice suspension where he just didn't handle that correctly at all. And the uproar from the fans, the personnel, the players in the National Football League was just something that he never wants to deal with again. So since then, his suspensions have been harsh. They've been hard on the athletes, and they've been done in a pretty similar fashion where he'll say there's going to be a suspension. It's almost like he waits to see what the uproar from the public will be, and then he'll come down with that suspension, wait for them to do an appeal, and perhaps lower it a little bit. But he goes hard out of the box now to start because he doesn't want another repeat of what happened with the Ray Rice situation. So that's a little of what happened here. These four games will probably end up being reduced. As I mentioned, I don't think they're going to touch the money aspect of it. But the biggest thing to take away from this is it wasn't necessarily the crime itself. Deflating footballs in the scheme of things should probably just be a finable offense. I think what the NFL and Roger Goodell are coming down on the Patriots for is their defiance and not wanting to comply when the NFL said they wanted them to completely cooperate with their investigation, to come out and give up whatever information they had. Tom Brady didn't give up his cell phone. He really hasn't answered any questions yet. In a way, I think the NFL was looking at the Patriots and saying, you are not bigger than the league. We know Roger Goodell has a great friendship with Patriots owner Robert Kraft. I think that had something to do with it as well. He doesn't want to show that he has favorites. Tom Brady has been the face of the NFL for years, almost a couple decades now. He's the pretty boy of the league. He's got the great wife. He's got the great endorsements. He's got the Super Bowl rings. Tom Brady has developed into such a huge persona, probably the biggest persona in the National Football League, And that might be something the NFL looked at, too, that you can think you have all the power in the world, but you don't. You are not bigger than the NFL. And I think that was really the biggest thing that the Patriots did. They've had Spygate in the past. They've been under questioning in the past for different things. They've been found to have lied before. They didn't necessarily come out and fully cooperate with what's happened with this most recent instance. You basically had them say when this first came to light that the NFL was wrong, Roger Goodell was wrong, you had the owner come out, the head coach, Tom Brady, deny, 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 and I don't think they took kindly to that. So I think in a way, this suspension wasn't necessarily for the deflated footballs. It was basically saying, listen, you guys have done things wrong in the past, and you think that you're just above the law with us, and you're not. So we're going to show you what it means to play under us in the National Football League, and you're going to have to deal with it. But even taking a step back from all of this, I think what you can really take from this situation and what I take from it in general as a sports fan is the black mark that some of these athletes have left on their careers and have left on the game based on their actions while they were playing their particular sport at one of the most elite levels you could play it at. There's been cheating in sports since we've had sports, and there always will be some form of cheating in sports. You always hear about players or teams trying to either get a competitive advantage and taking away from the integrity of the game based on their actions and being cheaters and trying to get that edge. You see it throughout sports now. You've seen it throughout sports in the past, most notably the Black Sox scandal in the 1900s when the Chicago White Sox threw the World Series on a gambling bet. They were, of course, labeled as cheaters, and Shoeless Joe Jackson will never be in the Hall of Fame because of it. 
Whether or not he had anything to do with it is for another day. But you've had the simplest form of cheating or getting a competitive advantage with spitballs back in the day and using too much pine tar and just trying to do those little things to get a little more edge than the guy next to you. Then as technology advances, we've had people use steroids and performance-enhancing drugs, and that's been one of the biggest black marks on the game of baseball in particular with all these athletes that people have admired and looked up to as role models using these performance-enhancing drugs. You had guys like A-Rod and Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa and all those faces of the late 90s and early 2000s that were found to be cheaters and then came out and defiantly looked people in the eye and said, we did not cheat and denied it to their grave. They refused to let anyone believe that they were cheaters. In the NFL, you have guys doing all sorts of things to try and get an advantage during the game, whether it's deflating footballs, whether it's Jerry Rice, the best receiver to ever play in the National Football League, using stick'em on his gloves when he played because everyone was using it. People are always going to find something to try and get an advantage over their opponent. And I can't necessarily say that I'm 100% against that to an extent. I mean, I guess you have to be, especially in this day and age. Even little things should be looked at as big deals and should be come down hard upon for that cheating aspect. What has gotten to me has been the big-name players being the ones accused of cheating while already playing at such an elite level. Take, for example, steroids. If you look at that throughout baseball or football or basketball, if you expected someone to use steroids, it might be from a journeyman baseball player who's been in the minor leagues for 10 or 15 years and doesn't feel like he's good enough to make it to the big leagues, but that some steroids might give him that extra edge to get him that call to live out his dream. He just doesn't think like he could do it. He's been struggling. Maybe steroids will push him up to that next step and get him to the major league level. Same thing in the NFL. You might have a player that's on a practice squad or a D-League squad, and he can't get up to that NFL roster, and every year he gets cut, and maybe he just wants to try steroids out to get a little bit stronger and maybe get him to a good enough level where he's able to at least be a backup for somebody on an NFL roster. While you do have those cheaters, and they do exist, what ends up getting all the ink is the big names who have been accused of using performance-enhancing drugs or have used something else to give them another competitive edge and a competitive advantage. The biggest names that come to mind for me on the Major League Baseball end of things is Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, and Alex Rodriguez, three players that most likely would have made the Hall of Fame if they had not used steroids at all. You have two great hitters and a Cy Young winner, three guys that were definitely going to be first ballot Hall of Famers who now have black marks against their name because they used steroids and cheated and then vehemently denied using steroids and cheating when they were caught. The thing about sports is, is that even if you do something wrong, time ends up healing all wounds. Take a guy like Pete Rose, for example, that was thrown out of baseball for cheating on the game itself while he was a manager for the Cincinnati Reds. 
He's supposed to be banned for life, and it's been now, I think, 25 years since his punishment, and he's been trying to get back into the league ever since. Unfortunately for him, he again vehemently denied any involvement with gambling or cheating for many, many years until he eventually came out and said, you know what, you got me, I did cheat. I was betting on the game of baseball, but I was betting for my team, not against them. Not like that helps my cause, but I did cheat. I should be punished, and I accept whatever punishment I get. Now, if he had come out and done that immediately following his ban from baseball, at this point, he would definitely be in the Hall of Fame because people love to forgive when someone is truly sorry for their wrongdoings. Unfortunately, he waited so long to do that, and we're still in the process of him trying to get back into the game of baseball, and it's probably going to last for a couple more years. For his sake, I hope he gets back inducted into the game of baseball so he could at least be there to see it. But it's the same thing for Bonds or A-Rod or Clemens. You know, if if they had just come out and apologized immediately and said that they were sorry, you look at a guy like Andy Pettit, who was another player to have been found of using steroids. He admitted to it right after he was found out in the Mitchell Report. He said he was just doing it to recover quicker from an elbow injury that he had suffered. He's truly sorry, blah, blah, blah. People don't even bring him up in the conversation now as somebody that used steroids because he came clean from it. But you have guys like A-Rod who are still playing baseball to this day, breaking Willie Mays' home run record and people still giving him the shame, shame. You're a cheater. This means nothing. The same thing has happened with Tom Brady. Had he come out, and even if he didn't fully know that there was something wrong, as the quarterback of an NFL franchise, you are the face and voice of the team. If you come out and take the blame completely from those guys and from the players and say, it was my fault, I didn't know this, I didn't know that, I'm truly sorry, it will never happen again, just put a nice speech together and truly be sorry for your actions people would be willing to open you back with open arms and it would quickly be forgotten about. The suspension probably would have not been as bad as it has been, but unfortunately, deny, 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 and here we are now still talking about it weeks and months later, throwing out opinions on whether or not he should be suspended for four games and what will happen to his legacy because of this and will the Patriots be able to come back and be okay and get into the playoffs and it goes on and on and on. All Tom has to do is apologize and this will all go away. Maybe he should have Giselle apologize for him. I mean, she's been vocal in the past when the team didn't quite perform to her standards She ripped Wes Welker a new one when he dropped that pass in the Super Bowl. She should come out and be in support and say, you know what? He cheated. We'll take the suspension. Let's move on. Unfortunately, I'm sure this won't be the last we'll talk about this, but that's the most recent development. As I mentioned, I don't think this was a suspension for the crime itself. I think it had a lot more to do with the Patriots and Tom Brady's defiance of the National Football League. But the big picture of all this, again, is having another elite athlete, someone people look up to as a role model, even though your role models shouldn't come from professional athletes, but should come from your parents or your coaches or your teachers or your friends or people that are in your lives every day. You know, you could want Tom Brady to be your role model, but if you walk past him on the street, he's not even going to bat an eye. If you wave him down, he would tell you to please get off of him. Please let go of my leg. Don't touch me anymore, sir. 
if you want athletes to be your role models, that's your own prerogative. But this is just another big name who thought he was bigger than the game itself. And look where it's gotten him to this point. Just another headache to have to deal with and more discussions for us to talk about regarding another black mark on the sport. After that, there's really no great segue to lead into the NBA playoffs, but I'm going to use this sentence as that segue to get into the NBA playoffs. Today, we wrapped up the final game of the second round of the NBA playoffs, which was between the Los Angeles Clippers and the Houston Rockets. The Rockets won today by 13, 113 to 100, winning Game 7 against the Clippers and moving on to the Western Conference Finals to play the Golden State Warriors, who, after falling down 2-1 to the Memphis Grizzlies, cruised to three straight wins and shut that series down 4-2. What's interesting about this Rockets-Clippers series is they were two teams that, coming into the playoffs, no one really wanted to trust on both sides. You had the Rockets with James Harden and whoever feels like showing up. You had the Clippers who had yet to get past the second round of the playoffs with Chris Paul and company. And it was time for one of those storylines to change. After the Clippers went up 3-1 in this series, it appeared that it finally would. You wouldn't think that Los Angeles would drop three straight games to the Rockets, who sometimes don't show up to the game, whether it's on offense or defense. Sometimes they just look lackadaisical and not ready to play. To no one's surprise, they won in a blowout in Game 5 on their home floor by 20-something points. I was a little surprised that the Clippers didn't try and put their foot down and shut down the series in Game 5, but they didn't. They had one of those lapses where the home team wins, gives them hope. Okay. Game six goes back to L.A. You assume that they're going to put forth a great effort and end the series, and it did appear so. The Clippers were up by 19 points in the third quarter, and many people, probably some fans at the game included, just decided to do other things. Turn the channel, watch something else, leave the stadium, go get a drink, make a sandwich, read a book, have a child, whatever it might be, the game seemed over. But it wasn't over to the Rockets, and they slowly started to make a comeback and slowly but surely got back into the game, led by guys like Corey Brewer and Trevor Ariza and J.R. Smith. Again, if you're operating heavy machinery or driving, I apologize for not warning you. I did just say Trevor Ariza, J.R. Smith, and Corey Brewer led the Rockets to this comeback. They end up tying the game. They end up taking the lead. They end up winning the game by more than 10 points, all without their star, James Harden, who sat for the entire fourth quarter. You had guys like Jason Terry taking control of the game. J.R. Smith shooting step-back three-pointers. What year is it? What's happened? It was one of the biggest collapses in NBA playoff history. And when Doc Rivers, the head coach of the Clippers, came to L.A., one of the things he wanted to do was separate himself from the Los Angeles Lakers and say that they are not going to play second fiddle to the Lakers anymore. So whenever they had home games, they'd get rid of the Lakers banners up top in the rafters or turn them around or put their banners over them and try to erase the fact that they were sharing the court with L.A., So he's tried to separate himself from anything dealing with Los Angeles. 
Unfortunately, after that game, they found themselves in the history books with the Lakers for one of the worst reasons they could be associated with LA for. If you remember when the Lakers played the Celtics in the finals, I believe this was 2008, the Lakers had a 24-point lead against the Celtics at one point in the first half and ended up losing that game to the Celtics and went down 3-1 in the series. They won game five, and then they lost game six by about 283 to lose those finals. But that was a huge collapse in recent L.A. history, which was almost beaten by this Clippers collapse of 19 points in the third quarter. I mean, at least with the Lakers, it was in the first half. This was the second half. The game appeared out of hand. The game appeared like they were going to finally get over that hump, and it did not happen. Fortunately for them, they had a chance of redemption, but unfortunately for them, they were going to Houston to play Game 7. You know Houston was going to be excited. They want to beat this Clippers team, and the Clippers were basically the ones that had all the pressure on them. Houston, even though they were the two-seed in the playoffs and had home court advantage in this particular game, were basically playing with house money. There was no pressure on them. They didn't have any pressure when they made that comeback in Game 6. It was just, we'll see what happens. They end up taking control in the first quarter, and they cruise to a victory. There was really no moment of the game where you thought, oh no, here come the Clippers. They led for most of the game, if not all of it, and the Rockets were able to win that game. I believe Harden had 31 points or 32 points. He had a great game. Dwight Howard had a decent game as well. And the Rockets bench, which definitely was one of the reasons why they won this series, also had a great game in Game 7. So the Rockets move on to play the Warriors. To me, whoever came out of this series wouldn't have a great shot at beating the Warriors. I like the Clippers a little bit more, but I don't see the Warriors losing to the Rockets. But for the Clippers, another disappointment with Chris Paul and Blake Griffin and DeAndre Jordan. The list goes on and on. Another season where they seemingly had all the pieces to put together something this year and make a playoff run. They beat the Spurs in seven games. Chris Paul has that buzzer beater shot. It finally appears like they're headed in the right direction. And now this series erases all of that. 2012, 2013, I believe they were up 2-0 against the Memphis Grizzlies in the playoffs. They ended up losing four straight. Last year, they went 2-2 with whoever they were playing against. You know, they had the Donald Sterling thing to deal with. They end up losing that series as well, but they've been right there. They were the furthest along they've ever been with the 3-1 series lead. You figure with these players coming along, the Rockets not really showing up, this was going to be the year they move on to the conference championship, but no. Another disappointment for Chris Paul, who had a pretty good game today. You can't put it all on him for this loss, but it's just like if people want to put him in the discussion of some of the biggest superstars in the NBA, you have to be able to at least get your team to the conference finals. A couple people said that he's now getting in that echelon of guys like Carl Malone and Charles Barkley and Patrick Ewing who never were able to win that big game. But you can't put him in that argument, at least not yet, because all three of those guys made it to the NBA Finals at least once. They may not have won a title, but they at least got there. Chris Paul hasn't even gotten to the Conference Finals yet. And poor Doc Rivers, the second time in his coaching career that he's blown a 3-1 series lead. He did it, I think, in 2005 or 2003 with the Orlando Magic 
up 3-1. He lost that series in Game 5 by 31 points or something. Got blown out again in this series in Game 5. Then lost the next two games by more than 10 points. Same thing happened this year. You can't necessarily put it all on the coach. For some points in Game 6 and Game 7, the Clippers just weren't rushing back on defense. Houston was getting a lot of layups, just playing very lazy. I mean, as a coach, I don't really know how much he has to tell his players to hustle and play good basketball. These are professional athletes. There's only so many times you can say, hey, uh, maybe run down there on that fast break. Try and block their shots instead of giving them layups. I don't know how much blame can be put on him, but this was a huge hit to the Clippers' legacy and just another black mark on their playoff career. This is exactly what I said before the playoffs started. The Clippers are a great team on paper. You think they have enough in their tank to make a run to the conference championship, but all they've done is disappoint. Every year they come up short. Will this be the year they change that? I thought it would be. I was proven wrong. Their bench just didn't come up with enough clutch points to get them to the next round. If you look across the playoffs, it's been the benches of these teams that have propelled them to the next rounds, at least in several of the games. It was Houston's bench that got them to win game six and game seven. There's going to be a couple benches I'll talk about in a couple of minutes that have also helped their teams win. There wasn't anyone on the Clippers, not Paul, Jordan, or Griffin, that ended up step big when they needed it most. Jamal Crawford had an awful series. Matt Barnes disappeared at times. J.J. Redick, even though he's my boy, was hit or miss at times as well. They didn't have that guy to have a breakout game, except when Austin Rivers did it earlier in the series. After that happened, he disappeared as well. They needed that bench to score, and they did not. That's why they go home again. So as I mentioned, the Rockets will play the Warriors. I don't think the Warriors will have too much trouble winning this series. It could potentially go six or seven games. I think the Rockets are going to try and get out on the offensive end and stick with the Warriors as long as they can. The Warriors have a really great defense. The Rockets' defense isn't too bad, but like I said, it's going to come down to the benches. Will the guys like Trevor Ariza and the J.R. Smiths of the team be able to step up big and get the Rockets a couple wins? The Warriors, I think, have lost only three times throughout the entire season at home. So if they hold serve for the whole series, they're going to win game seven and take the series. So the Rockets are going to have to win a game on the road. There's just no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So real quick over in the East, it turns out that Derrick Rose game winning shot really meant nothing because they still ended up losing the series in six games. LeBron James hit a game winning shot of his own in game four. Then they end up easily winning game five, and then they go into game six with a banged up Kyrie Irving and LeBron only scoring 15 points and still being able to control the game and just demolish the Bulls on their home floor to take game six. What's been interesting about these NBA playoffs is if you sat somebody down the day before the playoffs started on that last day of the basketball season and said to them, hey, here's what's going to happen. Three coaches are going to have the opportunity to coach either Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook and the Oklahoma City Thunder, Anthony Davis on the New Orleans Pelicans, and possibly Derrick Rose and company with the Chicago Bulls. Because after this loss, Tom Thibodeau is supposedly going to get run out of town in Chicago, and they're going to go in a different direction. We, of course, know Scott Brooks was fired when the regular season ended. 
The Pelicans got rid of their head coach, even though they told him if he made the playoffs, he'd be good to go, except they fired him anyway after he lost in the first round of the Warriors in four games. That took care of the Remember the Titans prophecy that he had already hit up to that point. Make the playoffs, you'll be good. No, they still fired him. Then on that final day, if you said, as far as games are concerned, we're going to have the Clippers get past the Spurs then get to game six on their home floor, up 19 points with a chance to end the series, and James Harden won't play the entire fourth quarter. What do you think is going to happen? Also, another game we're going to have, game six on Chicago's floor. The Cavs will be without Kevin Love from his torn shoulder. Kyrie Irving won't be playing because he hurt his foot, and LeBron will only score 15 points. Do you think the Bulls are going to send the series back to Cleveland? You would have responded, of course. You would have put the mortgage of your house on those bets not coming true. But for whatever reason, they have. That's been the crazy storyline so far of these playoffs. Those two games in particular, the Clippers not being able to close things out at home and then losing game seven and the Bulls just not showing up for game six on their home floor after narrowly losing game five. They were close. They had an opportunity to win it, but came up a little short. You thought they'd win that game six, send the series to Cleveland. They did not show up at all. Derrick Rose, I think, only finished with 14 points. Joachim Noah has forgotten how to play basketball. Not only does he look awkward and shouldn't be a professional basketball player to start, when he's not playing well, it's even worse. Paul Gasol was injured. Jimmy Butler didn't do anything. The Cavs should have lost that game, but their bench, as I mentioned before, stepped up huge, and guys that you haven't really heard of all season were the reason why the Cavs won that game. The Cavs will play the Hawks, who were able to win Game 6 in Washington. The poor Wizards. They had two opportunities to win in Game 5 and in Game 6. In Game 5, Paul Pierce hits a three-pointer with about eight seconds left to put the Wizards up one. He runs down the court yelling, Series over, to the bench of the Atlanta Hawks. Unfortunately for him, the game wasn't even over yet. The Hawks end up missing a drive, but Al Harford gets the rebound and the putback to give the Hawks a one-point lead with a second and a half left in the game, and that was the dagger. They end up winning that game. Game six, another one, comes down to the end. Wizards are down three. Paul Pierce gets the ball in the corner, has a Steph Curry-esque three-point shot while he's fading away and hammering his face go in. The crowd goes crazy. They thought it was a buzzer beater to send the game into overtime. People are hugging. The fans are going nuts. Heartbreak Hotel. That also stems from game four, I believe, when Paul Pierce ended up missing a three with under 10 seconds left that would have tied the game. They end up losing that game by five. They were right there. They just couldn't get over the hump. Unfortunately, the Hawks run into the Cleveland Cavaliers and they're not really playing their best basketball at this point. So unless they could really start shooting lights out like now, they're not going to really have much of a chance, I don't think, against Cleveland. Their best bet is that Kyrie Irving continues to play a little hurt. LeBron stays a little banged up. They might be able to pull out a couple of victories and keep the series close if they can get really hot shooting. 
I did mention those couple upsets that happened that you wouldn't have expected to happen before the playoffs start. If there was any upset that's still on the table, it would be the Hawks perhaps sending home the Cavs and getting to that finals series against either the Warriors or the Rockets. But as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, the one and two seeds all did make it to the conference championship, something that we just didn't expect to see when the playoffs started, especially once the Spurs went down. It seemed like everything would be open. No, it pretty much went chalk. So that's where we stand now, and that's where the excitement will be. The Cavs-Hawks gets underway on Wednesday, and we'll have a full gamut of excitement coming up soon enough. Well, that'll just about do it for this week's episode of The Bridge. You can listen to previous podcasts and listen to this one as many times as you want on my website at www.londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can listen to this episode on the Stitcher app. You can follow The Bridge on iTunes by subscribing through my website so you can get immediate updates as to when this podcast goes live so you'll have something to do on your long train rides to and from work. Next week, maybe we'll get back into the deflate gate business. We'll talk some NBA playoffs. We'll talk some NHL hockey. We'll talk some Major League Baseball and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.